On this Bible journey, we're going to look at a story so scandalous that most people have never heard a sermon on this episode. And many scholars believe that this story doesn't belong here at all. Still, Moses and Matthew insist we remember this. And reading the story as it was meant to be read reveals that we are shocked for the wrong reasons. And with that, it's time we've moved on to the story. Welcome to the Bible Journeys podcast. Your traveling companion is Ed Dickerson, an author, teacher, and scholar. He holds a master's degree in religious education from Andrews University. As you explore together, you will learn tools and techniques that illuminate scripture, renew your faith, and brighten your journey. If there was ever a story that you needed to understand what its significance across time, surely the one of Tamar and Judah is it. I mean, a daughter-in-law who seduces her father-in-law, deceives him, a man who buys sex from his daughter-in-law. The whole thing is really strange. But why is it there? What does it mean? And what is its significance? I call this episode Legacy of Repentance and Redemption. He's concerned about his legacy. He's concerned about uh, what he will leave behind. And she's concerned about lineage, but the whole story has significance even greater than that. Act One, The Widowmaker. Now, I call this Act One because most stories are in three acts. Act One is the setup. It introduces the characters and sets up the situation that's going to become the problem that the whole story is focused on. Act two is the confrontation, and act three is the resolution. So act one, the widowmaker. Usually we're talking about somebody who makes women to be widows, but here's a very interesting one where the widowmaker is uh, the widow herself, and yet she's not assassinating her own husbands. It's a very, as I said, a very strange story. At that time, this is Genesis 38, at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. Notice that the daughter isn't named, the man is named. The daughter, the wife of Judah, is going to show up very little in this story. So Judah gets married, and he and his wife in this passage have three sons, Ur, fascinating name, Onan, and Shelah, in that order. Uh, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. The wife for Ur was Tamar. We still don't know Judah's wife's name. In fact, we're not going to be told it. But this woman, Tamar, because he's setting up, the author is setting this up as the, the conflict is going to be between Judah and Tamar, believe it or not. But Uri, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. We don't know what he did. The, script, the texture simply doesn't tell us any of that. All it says is that he was wicked. Uh, it's a very short biography and not a very favorable one. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so 
Well, let's just say he backed out at the last minute. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Now, this is an Old Testament custom that probably many of you are aware of, and that is, uh, it's called leveret marriage. And the whole idea was that if a man died without leaving an heir, then the uh, the brother or the next near kinsman, as we find out in other books of the Bible, the near kinsman was supposed to take her as his wife and help her to have a child that would be raised up in the name of the former husband, the one who had died. That's the situation we face here. Onan has to do his duty, but he doesn't. It says he spilled his seed on the ground. It was very, very dis disgraceful the way he treated her. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Well, now you're Judah and you're concerned because uh, you only have three sons, and two of them have been married to this woman, and, and they both died. So you're concerned and probably a little superstitious. There's a lot of this. Their understanding of God was very narrow, and he probably thought she was bad luck. She has made herself a widow twice. She's the widow maker, irony upon irony. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die just like his brothers. In other words, he doesn't really intend to give Shelah as her husband to Tamar. He wants to save him because he's concerned about his legacy, as we said. So Tamar went to live in her father's household, and here she's denied her own agency to have her own household, and she's to live uh, as a dependent upon her father. Time passes. After a long time, Judah's wife died, the daughter of Shua. So again, we still don't know her name, only her father's name. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. It may be surprising to you, but shearing sheep was a specialized profession way back this far, several, a couple of thousand years at least, before uh, Jesus was born. And so you took your sheep and had them sheared by this, by this special people. He would go to Timnah where the, the shearers would be, and there would be wool merchants there and, and a lot of other things. And so he was going to do that. But notice that it, a long time had passed. When Judah had recovered from his grief, that there was a mourning period because he'd lost his wife, and that time too had passed. And so shearing was something that happened the first thing in the spring, practically, before the lambing, uh, the first thing after winter. So he's had this long uh, period of being closed up. He was he was grieving his wife, and he was in. It was winter time. Now he's going to get out. And he's going to go to what is going to be a celebration where he shears his sheep. So there's the situation. In their culture, Judah owed Tamar a husband. And he has deceived her, or at least tried to. He's lied to her, said that, wait until Shelley grows up. And yet a long time passes, and she still hasn't been given uh, Shelley as a husband. And so there's the conflict. She is owed this because a woman in those days had to have a man to support her. Now, there are many reasons for this. I'm not going to go into that right now. But she needed a, a husband or a son to take care of her in her old age. It would be her retirement program. And she has been denied. She has no husband. 
And of course, her father is likely to die before she does. And she has no son because uh, Judah will not fulfill his duty to her. He will not pay what is really considered her his debt to her. So act two is the widower. And the widower now is Judah. He has just lost his wife. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes. So she was dressed in mourning and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Now, he's not gotten there yet. It's very important that she sits down on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So she saw through this, but she has gone and she has disguised herself. And how she's disguised herself is by a veil. But this was not just simply because he couldn't, so he couldn't see her face. This also said something about her profession, which we're about to find out. Tamar also knows Judah is not going to risk his third son, meaning he has abandoned her. He's just abandoned her. He's not going to mess with her anymore. He's a widow, widower whose grieving period has ended, and he is ready to celebrate. Because his grieving period has ended, he's going to get money for the sheep and all this. He's ready to celebrate. And he's on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. She has to catch him there. He has not yet sold his wool because he hasn't been sheared yet, meaning he has little or no money. And this is very common in the ancient times, especially for farmers like this, uh, someone who is a goat herd. And so until he has the money from the, the, uh, the shearing of the wool, he doesn't have any very, very little money. So she disguises herself and positions herself on the road to Timnah so that she can intercept him on his way. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face. Apparently, when she put the veil on, it didn't just hide her face. It told people she was a prostitute. Not realizing, he doesn't recognize her, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and began bargaining with her. All right, she's figured this out. He's without his wife for more than a year, probably, the mourning period. He's in a mood to celebrate, and he probably has normal male appetites, and she's going to take advantage of this. This is a real shocker. But this is the conflict that's been set up by the fact that he won't honor his debt to her. So they bargain, and she says, well, what will you give me? You know, you, you, want to, you want to sleep with me? You want to have sex with me? What are you going to give me? He has not yet sold his wool, so he doesn't have money. But she doesn't want money. Remember, she wants a son. She wants a legitimate heir of Judah who will inherit from Judah, and who will be able to take care of her. That's the only thing that works for her. She doesn't want money. She wants this legitimate heir. So back to, what will you give me? I'll send you a goat for my flock, he said. Well, I will send you. I want what I want now, but 
I won't pay you until the, the uh, kids are born, which is something that happens after shearing to this day. Um, shepherds and uh, those who have sheep and goats prefer to uh, shear them before they kid or before they give birth because it's just just a better situation all around. Uh, I'll send you a flock, a goat, a young goat for my flock, he said. So I will send you in some time in the future. It's shearing time. The new kids are not yet born. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. In other words, how do I know I'm going to get paid? And again, he, it's not the payment she wants, but she needs that. He said, well, what, what pledge should I give you? What, what, do you, what will you accept? And she says, your seal and his cord and the staff in your hand. She answered, well, the seal, of course, is, is like his credit card or his driver's license. It's, it's his ID. It's how he um, pays his debts. It's, it's how he uses uh, money and so forth. And, of course, the staff is something that's very personal. He uses it every day, so he would easily, it was something he would know very well. So, and it's not the value of the items that matters, but the certain identity of the owner. She knows what she wants. She's not being a prostitute. That is, she's not taking the profession in order to get money. She has set herself in a position to intercept him because he's the one who owes her the child. So he gave them to her, and she became pregnant by him. Now, God's approval of this situation is in is evident in the conception, as the psalmist says much later, children are the heritage of the Lord. And the ancients understood this, that um, God was the one who gave you children. They even knew very well what the process was, but they also understood that, as we see already in the line of the patriarchs, uh, you don't always get children just because you want them. You don't always get children just because you uh, perform the actions. It's a, it's a lot more difficult than that. So, after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Why? Because she is not a prostitute. She doesn't want to be seen as a prostitute. She wants to be seen as a widow. And this becomes increasingly important. So he gave them to her. He gave what she asked for. Uh, she became pregnant by him. So after this happens, meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adonamite in order to get his pledge back. So he wants to get back that the seal in its court. He wants to get back his staff because they identify him as someone who went to a prostitute. But he did not find her. He went to where she was supposedly plying her trade, and she wasn't there. But there's more. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any such here, they said. Now, most of the gods of the ancient world were fertility gods. And one of the ways that you, you wanted to inspire the gods to be fertile, the idea was what we call sympathetic magic. Well, the belief was that if the gods saw you having sex, they would have sex, and that would give, make fertility on the earth. There would be rain, and there would be, the crops would grow, and you would have children, and so forth, which was so important because, as we see later in this uh, story, after a few years of drought, uh, Jacob went from someone who had so many sheep 
that he had to move three days away, three days journey away from his father-in-law to starvation. That's just what happens. In, in an ancient world, in a dry climate like this, where you depend upon your crops and your, your herds. Uh, but they said there hasn't been any here. The people of the town where she set up to meet Judah did not see her. As they now never saw her as a shrine prostitute. There hasn't been. They don't say we don't know where she went. They say there wasn't any such thing here. And we don't know what you're talking about. There is no shrine here. There is no shrine prostitute. And again, this is, they would have prostitutes at the temples because they were to encourage the gods to be fertile. But then the uh, men who paid for the, the, the money that was paid to the prostitution, it wasn't always men. There were male prostitutes in some of these places as well. But the, uh, the, the, uh, after they paid this, this money went to uh, the temple, to the priests and so forth. Uh, and women were, many women were expected to uh, prostitute themselves. That was part of their duty. Uh, and as we say, there were both men and women prostitutes at the temple. But they're saying, hey, we don't know what you're talking about. There's, there's, no, there's no shrine prostitute here. We, we never saw one. This is really important because in the, for this whole thing to work, it has to be Judah is the only one who saw her and the only one who uh, was one of her clients. He was the only client. That matters. Just as having the signet, uh, the seal and the, the uh, staff matters, both of those say, this, yeah, I'm, a, I'm with child, but it's your child. You're the only one who saw her. You're the only one who knew she was there. And you're, this, is, this is what you gave in pledge. Because he can't find her to give back the pledge, and, or to give a goat, to give the kid, and to receive back the uh, staff and the seal. So he goes back to talk to Judah. And Judah's consort has gone missing. So he gave them, oh, this is what she said. She became pregnant. So he gave those to her. God's approval was evident in the conception. We said, the children are heritage of the Lord. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Again, eliminating any question regarding paternity. She's the only one, or he is the only one who saw her as a prostitute. He's the only one who became her client. He's the only, only Judah did this. And this is so important to the story. Because, again, she needs to have a legitimate heir. And it's not just so she can have help for her old age. It's not just money, as we shall see. Yeah, and this is the confrontation that's going on here. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. How can they know that? Because she's pregnant. She's not married. She's supposed to be living as a widow with her father. She's guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. This was the punishment in that culture for prostitution, for unfaithfulness. 
bring her out and have her burned to death. And he was pretty eager to do this immediately, just write her off. And he probably was tremendously relieved because now he didn't have to worry about it. He was a guilty conscience for him, you know. There she is, and you haven't paid your debt. Well, now you don't have to worry about it. Except that she was very smart. Judah had patronized a prostitute whom no one else had seen, with whom he had left his signet and staff, and who could not be found in order to redeem his belongings. Now he's informed that Tamar must have been a prostitute, but he is blind to any potential connection between the two pieces of information. He's the one who went to a prostitute. This prostitute is now uh, pregnant. His daughter-in-law is now pregnant because she was a prostitute. And he doesn't connect the dots. Oh, maybe it was me. Not at all. Uh, that line, if uh, you f forgive me, is from my book, For Such a Time. I talk about this. There's much more in that chapter that I'm going to be able to share in two of these podcasts. But uh, if you want that, it's available. And... Uh, there's a lot more in this story. So there we are, the confrontation. We had the setup where the problem is described. Now we have the confrontation where she goes to seek what she deserves. Now, for us in our day, this is really icky. What the young people would say is the ooh factor. It's a very strange story. But let's see how it is resolved because that's act three. The debt was paid, the justice is done. So, as she was being brought out, so she's being brought out for the purpose of being burned. Don't forget that. She sent a message to her father-in-law, that is to Judah. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize them. Whose seal and cord and staff these are. Whoa! Didn't see that coming. And Judah passes verdict on himself because he recognizes them very easily. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Now understand, uh, his behavior in this episode has been pretty, pretty bad. So this isn't a high bar. But he's, he's admitting the fact that he owed her this debt, and he refused to pay it. And really, we should be we should be upset because of what he didn't do that he should have done, not because of what she did to seek justice. She didn't make the rules. Men did. But she played by those rules, and she got what was owed her. She's more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shayla, and he did not sleep with her again. So we have conception that occurred from one incident and one incident only. And the story is not quite done. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. She didn't get one. She got two. Another indication of God's approval here. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on the wrist and said, this one came out first. Because, of course, being firstborn mattered a lot. But then he drew back his hand. His brother came out 
And she said, so this is how you have broken out. She was shocked. She expected the other one to come first, which is why she marked it. But the, the, uh, all it did was establish that, in fact, he was second born in this particular case. So she has twins. And the kicker to all this, remember, it's about legacy and lineage. He was named Perez, breaking out. He's the older one. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zera, uh, scarlet or brightness. Rebecca, who was Judah's grandmother, had had twins, and they had the similar mix-up. One had his hand on the other's ankle. So there was this firstborn competition, the same thing that had happened with Jacob and Esau. But David eventually descends from Perez. So here we have the fascinating thing. He's descended from Paris, not Shelah. In fact, we don't hear about Shelah again, ever. He disappears. But Paris is in the genealogies of Jesus. And so there we have this fascinating but strange story. And again, the real issue is not what she did, which we find scandalous and... Uh, Probably it was, even in those days. What we what we should be upset about is the fact that Judah, who is in this line of uh, the patriarchs, is so uncaring and so careless and so irresponsible. He denies her what he owes her. He treats the widow uh, poorly. Remember, the, the, throughout the Bible, uh, God talks about taking care of the widows and the fatherless. And here... Not only does uh, Judah not take care of the widow, the minute he has the opportunity, he says, burn her, burn her to death. He wants to be done with the problem. And he comes out, when, when it becomes out that he is the father, then he is chagrined because he realizes, I owed her this. Now, again, we have problems with this, but that's our problem, not their problem. And if you have questions about this, you can certainly send me uh, an email at BibleJourneys at yahoo.com. Uh, but uh, I'd be glad to, to deal with that in a future episode. But here we have this very interesting episode. Now, we've talked about this. Here's the three-act structure, and here is the story, which it occurs in the middle of the story about Joseph. In fact, it's so radical that this is, shows up in this place that one of the great scholars of the Old Testament says, this doesn't even belong here. It shouldn't be here at all. But I'll tell you something, uh, give you a highlight for the next episode, and that is, yes, it should be. In fact, when we look at it, when we read the Bible as it was meant to be read, as the author wrote it, we can see that it has to be here. But that's for next time. If you've gained something from this discussion, please be sure to share it with someone because those who join our Bible journeys here can become our traveling companions for eternity.